This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Wrangler. Whether you ride a bike, a bronc, or a skateboard, or all three, Wrangler jeans are for you. Classic or modern styles, a range of fits, all price points, vintage re-releases. Wrangler has something for everyone. Visit wrangler.com and check out their selection of jeans, shirts, and outwear for men and women. New styles, great fits. Wrangler, real comfortable jeans. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When David Giffels was 50 years old and completely healthy, he decided to build his own coffin with his 81-year-old master craftsman father. Why? Well, I asked him that on the podcast today. David Giffels, a writer who previously published a book of essays about growing up in the Rust Belt of Ohio in the 1970s called The Hard Way on Purpose. In his latest book, Furnishing Eternity, A Father, A Son, A Coffin, and A Measure of Life, he recounts the experience of building his own coffin with his father and the lessons about life, aging, and death that he picked up along the way. We begin our show discussing why many in the Rust Belt live by the motto, the hard way on purpose and how it manifests itself in their undying loyalty to their sports teams that come up short year after year. We then shift gears and discuss David's project of building his own casket with his dad, the expectations he had going into it, and why lying in your own coffin is, unfortunately, not as profound an experience as you think it would be. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash giffles. David Giffels, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So you wrote a book called Furnishing Eternity, A Father, A Son, A Coffin. And it's all about you building uh, a coffin with your your own coffin with your dad. But before we get to that morbid story, let's, let's talk about your home state of Ohio because you write a lot about that and it p- comes up in the, the book as well. Uh, before this one, you wrote a collection of essays called about the Rust Belt called The Hard Way on Purpose. And I love the title of that. How does that describe, you know, The Hard Way on Purpose, describe the character of the Rust Belt in Ohio? Yeah, I, I think it describes, especially for my generation, which is the people who came of age after the boom years, after the sort of the, the glory of, of industry, and really only knew our hometowns as places that had fallen onto hard times. To, to commit to a place like Akron, Ohio, or Detroit, or Buffalo, or you know, Des Moines, it, it was, was to make a conscious decision not to do things the easy way or the glamorous way. You know, a lot of my friends from college moved to Chicago because that was a Midwestern place that seemed like, you know, sort of the, the, the easier way on purpose. And you know, at first, it's sort of a commitment to the sort of the grittiness and and the struggle. But then, it, like you know, the the on purpose part is that it just becomes your way of doing things. Sort of like I I use an analogy in that book of Jack White from from the White Stripes, who talked about when he was on stage, when he would have the stage set up. If the organ needed to be like three feet away for him to reach it, he would have the the stage crew put it four feet away to create that sort of tension of, of the performance. And I, I kind of think that's a, a metaphor for the, the, the way we, we do things here. I mean, you know, it would be much easier to root for the New England Patriots, but we love the Cleveland Browns. You know? <laughs> well, that, that comes up to the sports, you know, I think yeah. everyone knows about Ohio and their, you know, and their love for their, their losing teams. Like, you know, for example, the Cleveland Browns. I mean, what do you, what do you think that says about, I mean, is that 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 hard way on purpose attitudes? Like, yeah, yeah, 
Things are bad, but we're gonna we're gritty. We're gonna stick through it no matter what. Yeah, but Brett, you you said our losing teams, and it's it's not that we lose; it's that we always almost win. Yeah, and, and that's you know we're like Charlie Brown, who just keeps believing that Lucy's not going to pull the football away when he's trying to kick it because we just always have gotten so close. And, and in fact, when LeBron James came back and sort of delivered on his promise to bring a championship two years ago. There was a little bit, not just for me, but I think for a certain kind of person, a little bit of ambivalence. Like, you know, we had the distinction of having gone 52 years longer than any other, you know, pro sports city without a championship. And, you know, anyone can win a championship because everyone else had. But we had that one thing that we were like the the long, you know, still in the struggle. And so it was great when he won, but it was kind of an identity check. It's kind of like, you know, now that you've won a championship, you don't really have that sort of mantle of, of, of hard times. Yeah. I like that idea that you, you didn't, you're not, you don't lose. You just almost, right. you've almost won a lot. I mean, I mean, what do, you, what do you think the difference between that, that what's the distinction there? Is it like, there's like hope in the almost winning yeah. or there's like no hope in always losing? Yeah. I mean, there's a beautiful and terrible hope in that because because it's not total despair because there's always that glimmer that we were just there. We were just on the goal line when we fumbled or we were just about to make the final out when, when it dribbled, you know, past the, the shortstop or whatever that, that leads you to a kind of hope that's, that's not manifested by any truth so far, but you still believe it's there. And, you know, that's a, it's a great human thing. I mean, that's, you know, that carries far beyond sports, but it's also a terrible thing because you've never had proof that, that your hope will be fulfilled, but you keep at it, you know? So it's, it's a delicate line, but um, it's one that seems to really be reinforced, you know, in, in so many parts of our culture. I mean, sports is just a, just one example, but, you know, in uh, economically and, and culturally and so forth. Yeah, I mean, what I what I liked about that distinction, it sounds like when you say like we almost we almost won, it, instead of saying we lost, like it sort of it gives you the it gives you your like sense of autonomy. It's like we did everything we could, right? But we just came up short for whatever reason. You know, the, going back to sports, you know, a lot of those reasons like the those teams came up short. It was just like a fluke, right? A fumble, the ball bounced the wrong way. It wasn't anything you could have done, and that happens a lot in life. And you did everything you can. And, and instead of saying, like, man, I'm a loser, which is sort of like definitive and uh, universal. It's like, well, I almost won. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I don't know. For some reason, it's, yeah, like you said, it's, it's very hopeful. Yeah. You know, the older I get, the more I, I really think that like the highest highs of my life and the lowest lows of my life are really more similar than different. Like that, that intensity, the intensity of, of losing or of almost winning is very similar to the intensity, the intensity of winning or almost having lost, you know, um, as opposed to like the vast middle of what most of life is about where, you know, the day when nothing really happened, isn't the day you remember, you know, 10 years later, you remember the death of somebody you love, or you remember your wedding day, you know, in ways that are very similar. So, you know, like, I, I guess I can handle, <laughs> losing more because I define it as not winning you know, and not, you know, in, in every part of life. Well, I got to ask you, cause I, I'm an OU grad. Do you think Baker Mayfield mm-hmm. is going to turn around the Cleveland Browns? 
Well, of course I do. You know, like, <laughs> just like I did with the other 30 quarterbacks in the last 15 years. <laughs> but um, what I like about him so far is that he has a sense of humor. And if you live in Cleveland, you need to have a sense of humor. And, and the more bitter and twisted the sense of humor, the better. But I mean, he, I don't know if you've seen the video of him doing his imitation of John Dorsey, the Browns general manager. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's hilarious. And, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's like born of, of a true spirit of humor. He's going to need it, you know, like no matter what, for at least a couple of years, he's going to need that sense of humor. But yeah, so far I, I, I like everything about him. Well, what, that's interesting. What do you think the humor is like in Ohio? Thanks to, or particularly, cause like there's, you know, oh, you know, I think Ohio gets a lot of attention, particularly during election years mm-hmm. and it's sort of treated as a monolith, yeah. but it's not right. There's like, you know, Southern Ohio is sort of like Appalachia almost. And then Northern Ohio is something different. So like, I mean, let's say Northern Ohio where a lot of the industrial yeah. towns are like, what, how is that? Like, do they have, is there like a sense of gallows humor there? You think? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely the humor that comes from people who've been through a struggle, which is, which is, has its own kind of edge to it. And, you know, and, and from a place that doesn't have a lot of sunny days and people, you know, sort of live in a sort of with a kind of wry understanding of what it means to live in a kind of darkness. But especially because, you know, for more than a generation, We've grown so used to being the punchline of, of other people's jokes, uh, so used to being misunderstood or ignored that we are very quick to get to the punchline quicker. And that, you know, that, that's a cultural thing. Like when you've been kind of like laughed at and you learn how to laugh at yourself better and quicker, you kind of diffuse somebody else's attempt to do it. Right. Now I've seen that YouTube video uh, about Cleveland, like someone like made a commercial about Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are great. Yeah. The, the ironic, uh, chamber of commerce, right. uh, Cleveland, it's, it's not as bad as you think right. kind of vibe to it. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, this kind of, this sense of gallows humor uh, leads to a great segue to uh, your new book, Furnishing Eternity, which is about building your own coffin, which I guess is something that someone who grew up in the Rust Belt watching basically the city decay and, and, and diminish, something that that person would do. I'm curious, like, why did you, like, what kickstarted this? Like, why did you decide, I want to build my own coffin? Because you're a young guy. I mean, how old were you when you decided to do this? I was, I was nearing 50, and it was not so much uh, the press of mortality or, you know, like, the, the sort of the big ideas of life. What it really started out as was a sort of quasi-argument between my wife and me. And we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. And when you've been married a long time, very often what, what sounds to other people like an argument between the couple is actually just us practicing our material. And so my wife comes from, she's from a first generation Sicilian, very old school Sicilian Catholic mother and, and a father who was from the hills of Kentucky with very old sort of traditional notions about most of life, including the way a funeral should be, which is the sort of formal Catholic go to the funeral home by the manufactured, you know, sort of Ethan Allen type piece of furniture and spend a lot of money on it. And that's how things are done. And I, you know, in response to that, had this sort of half-baked idea that I just wanted to be thrown into a dumpster after I die. And so I would exaggerate my side of it 
and she would exaggerate her side of it when we, we would have this debate, especially in front of other people, to the point where it became like, well, I am never going to be buried in a $5,000 piece of furniture. I want to be buried in a cardboard box. And then she would, you know, this would go on. And so, you know, my dad is a, uh, was a, um, a, a master furniture builder and, and, um, carpenter and made lots of furniture for us and for uh, uh, my siblings and so forth. So one night we're having this, this sort of debate and I just looked at my dad and it was just really literally just sort of a spontaneous whimsical thing. I was like, you know what? You and I could probably build a pretty cool casket together. And it was like immediately, cause I'm a cheapskate too. I'm like, it would probably cost a couple hundred bucks, you know, and it'd be some, it'd be one of those weird things that we like doing together. So, you know, so really it was not any more than that, than this sort of like, just might be crazy enough to work right. idea that somehow took hold. Right. So there was no like, yeah, you know, existential memento mori thing. Like you didn't think like this would be a great book. You're just like, no, we're, I'm going to build a, I'm going to build a coffin because my wife thinks that's dumb and I, let's do it. Yeah. Well, here's where it gets weird. Here's where fate comes in. Cause you're right. It wasn't initially, but very soon I'm like, you know, I think I would like to write about this. And then I'm like, you know, I'm getting to that point in my life as, as a person and as a writer where, you know, the big ideas are important and, you know, this could be my death book. You know, like I could sort of philosophically, esoterically think about the notions of mortality and death, but I hadn't lost anybody very, very close to me really in my life yet. Both my parents were still living. You know, I, I, I hadn't really had like, you know, the sort of unexpected death of somebody at the, at an age that seemed too young, you know, so close to me that it had really kind of hit, you know, sort of punched right in the, the stomach. And so I'm like, yeah, so I'm going to use this, um, the, the template of this narrative of my dad and I doing this project together as a way to explore the big, one of the big themes, you know, that writers should take on. And ha ha ha, the writing gods said. And so within a year, my mom unexpectedly died. She had been struggling with cancer, but she had a heart attack and it just kind of took her right down. And then a, a year later, while we're still in this project, my best friend who was my age, who, you know, too young to die, not even 50, also died. And so it was kind of like the writing god said, oh, you want to dabble with the mortality theme, do you? you know, so here you go. So it really, I mean, it changed everything completely. It changed the book completely and it changed, you know, the uh, my life completely and, you know, kind of taught me a, a very humbling lesson about, you know, how to think about things and and the the actual lack of agency that writers have when we believe we have sometimes complete agency i I'm, how did how did your you know losing your mother and your friend so close together and while you were doing this project of building your own coffin how did that change the project like when you were working on the coffin like did it take on like significance like it would i mean it was more heavy on you yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, because I was writing the book, actively writing the book when that happened, you know, and this was a different kind of book. It was more like it's, I mean, it's a memoir, but it's really, it was really more journalistic because I was documenting the process of building this thing as it was happening. And so when these events unexpectedly come in, I had to deal with them, you know, in a practical way as a writer. And, and so first, you know, when my mom died, you know, I'm actively grieving her and trying to make sense of it 
the chaos of grief. Grief is violent and, you know, and moves in cycles that are hard to understand. And, and to, to try to gather that as a writer and, and make sense of it on the page was a huge challenge. Um, and, and, and then a year later to go through it again with my friends. So logistically, it, it was troubling, but then, yeah. So then going back, you know, to my dad's, my dad's workshop was in his barn kind of out in the country, um, in a sort of, um, suburban township near Akron, Ohio, where I live. So I'd make these treks out to his barn and work there sometimes alone. And I found it to be, um, therapeutic because even though I'm obviously building my own coffin, which seems like a sort of like, you know, so overt, you know, connection with, with the death and, and the, the, the temporal nature of life. It was really just, you know, sort of a process that I could put my hands on and understand in a much more concrete, tangible way than, than trying to understand the concept of the, that, that my mom wasn't there to ask a question of, or that my friend John wasn't there to, say, let's go see a band, you know, so, so this sort of, it, it was a weirdly a kind of a comfort just because it was something that I could work on and also work on with my dad who, you know, I, I suddenly became hyper aware, you know, dad is 83 years old, you know, he's old, he's the oldest person I know, you know, like constantly thinking, you know, am I going to get the phone call that he's, you know, so, something suddenly happened to him. So, you know, just to spend time with him where it wasn't about, you know, thinking of his, mortality, but just, you know, this thing we were working on was, was helpful. Well, and he developed lung cancer during this thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he sort of, um, he sort of tricked me because he actually, yeah, he, he, just as we got the idea that we were going to do this project, um, he was diagnosed with, with cancer and he had to undergo treatment. Um, and it was pretty heinous treatment. I mean, they, 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 basically just put him in this like look like the the man in the iron mask contraption that they would strap him down on this thing and just blast the shit out of it with with radiation and he man he would come home and he'd just go to work in his garden you know from from each day's treatment like he sort of really deliberately tried to make this not be what his life was about and by virtue of that, it made me think, well, you know, I, I'm sure cancer's bad, but look, you know, dad's so tough. You know, like, look, look how he's doing it. And so, you know, for, for about the five years that this project, um, spanned, he was being treated in, in, in some way or another for, for cancer, but, but proving that, that you can, you know, live a vibrant life without it. I mean, I mentioned before that I thought of him as the oldest person I knew. And especially after my mom died and I saw the way he dealt with it, he also seemed like the most alive person I knew. Like he never talked about it, but you could just sort of see by the way he was living that he was going to make the very most of, of the time and energy that he had. And so he, he really lived, I mean, you know, it's cliche, but he lived life to the fullest in the final years of his life. And I should point out the book ends, um, with us, you know, sort of finishing this process and the book, and then, you know, it takes about a year for, for a book to come out after the time the manuscript's been accepted. Um, this book came out on January 2nd and three days later, my dad died. I'm really sorry. So it was kind of, 
yeah, thanks. I, it was, um, it was, you know, definitely the strangest irony of my life and probably of his life, but, but in a way it was kind of, uh, I was really glad that we had done this. I'm really glad that he had gotten to see uh, what the book was and, and to get to understand it. But, you know, again, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this, this book has had a weird life of its own from the very beginning and taught me a lot more than I ever could have guessed it would. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Jeremy here, producer for the AUM podcast. Support for today's show comes in part from Starbucks Double Shot, a chilled coffee energy drink that gives you the gusto to go from point A to point done. Look, guys, I have a lot of hats to wear. Husband, dad to two young kids, podcast producer. I need a lot of energy to not just survive my day, be fully present, fully effective, make sure everything gets done that needs to get done. Even though in September, we just had a hot streak here in Denver, I don't always want a hot coffee for that afternoon pick-me-up. Enter the Starbucks Double Shot. Starts with bold Starbucks coffee and is blended with milk for a smooth, creamy, delicious flavor. It's then enhanced with ginseng, guarana, and B vitamins to give you that little extra oomph. Starbucks Double Shot comes in six delicious flavors, mocha, vanilla, hazelnut, white chocolate, Mexican mocha, and coffee, that last one being my personal favorite. Starbucks Double Shot. It's energy to do things you actually do. Find it in your local convenience store. Thank you, Jeremy. And this episode's also brought to you in part by Omigo. All right, guys, bear with me for a moment. I'm going to get weird with you because we're going to talk about something that people don't talk about, and that's clean yourself up after you go number two in the bathroom. Now, bear with me because it's going to be a game changer. So here in America, for over 100 years, we've been using paper. First, it was pages from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Now we got toilet paper. But have you ever thought about wiping with toilet paper? Like really thought about it? Because like if you go out and work in the garden, you get mud on your hands. Would you come in and wipe your hands off with a dry paper towel? Well, no, you would get some water in there to get the mud off. Why don't we do that when we go to the bathroom? Well, other countries have been doing that. Like in Japan, they got these toilets that clean you off with water. There's a company now here in the States that's trying to make that a thing here. It's called Omigo. It's a revolutionary toilet seat replacement that will change the way you use the bathroom. With Omigo, you can finally say goodbye to toilet paper. You're going to save trees, water, and electricity in the process. It washes you in the right places. You can adjust the temperature, position, pressure, width, and movement. feels like you just took a shower. When you're done, they got a little fan that dries you off. The seat is heated. They've got a nightlight in it. It deodorizes everything with a carbon filter that eliminates odor. This thing is pretty cool. My kids call it the robot toilet because that is what I'm it really is. Sorry. Super easy to install. It took me just about 20 minutes. We've been using it for a few months. Game changer. No more having to holler at your kids to bring you a roll of toilet paper because you've run out. Don't have to do toilet paper ever again. If you want to try this, got a special offer. You can get $100 off your order when you go to myomigo.com slash manliness. That's Omigo, O-M-I-G-O. So myomigo, M-Y-O-M-I-G-O.com slash manliness to get $100 off your Omigo toilet seat. I know the future seems weird at first, so let's let it be weird. Go check this out. Definitely be a game changer. And now back to the show. Uh, I'm curious, what's it? Because I, I know there's a lot of our listeners who are probably your age in their 50s. And I mean, that's kind of a weird time because if they're if your parents are still alive, they're in their 80s probably. They're getting sick. And then like you finally lose. I mean, what's that like seeing your parents you know, slowly decline? And then finally, and then what's it like like when you no longer have parents on there, it's like, it's like, did you feel something different? Like I remember my mom, when my, my grandfather died not too long ago, uh, she finally says, I finally, like, it's weird not having parents on earth. It's like, I feel like an adult, yeah. like, like fully an adult almost. Yeah. I think specifically as sort of a generation Xer, there, there's something about the way we view aging and mortality that's unique to our generation, which is that like, I don't 
really know what age I am. I mean, 50 is a weird number to me because it doesn't seem like what 50 probably used to be, you know? I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly seems true. It just seems like in a, in an age of cultural acceleration that I don't feel a generation gap from my kids, but it's not like I'm trying to act like them or, um, trying to be younger than I am, but I also don't feel like embarrassed that I am interested in new music, you know, when I was supposed to leave that behind at age 30 or something like that. And so by the same token, like my wife and I have talked about this, we're like, you know, it just seems like we just went, we made this, this invisible leap from going to all of our friends' weddings to now going to their parents' funerals. Like there was this, there's just this sort of generational thing that kind of slips in in a sneaky way that all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, our parents are dying and we don't really know what that means. And so for me, like, you know, to, to, to lose my mom, it was a, it was a confrontation with mortality that I hadn't experienced before, but it was really confounding. It was hard to put into context because I started thinking of myself after she died, one of the things that starts happening happened with me, and I've heard other people say this, is you start to do like sort of obsessive math. Like at first it's like, it's been exactly three days since I spoke to her. And then it's been, you know, like exactly two weeks and one day since she was in our house and she was standing on that floorboard that's three floorboards away from the baseboard or whatever. And then, but then I started to do like in my head, I would calculate like what, who she was at exactly the age I am now. So, you know, if I was 48 years, three months and six days, I would actually like try to figure out, okay, that was this year. And I was to say, like, who was she in relation to who I am? You know what I mean? No. Yeah, I know exactly. Because yeah. after I read that, like I'd started doing that with my parents. My parents were supposed to alive, but it was like, yeah, like what were my parents like when I was, th- what year was it when my parents were 36 years old? Yeah. And when my dad turned 50, did he feel like he was becoming an old man? Because when I turned 50, yeah, I didn't have, it was just like, uh, I don't know, you know, like I went for a run and I probably listened to like parquet courts or something, you know, like, and I don't know, it just, it's, it, it seems different. No, yeah. You don't start listening to Bobby Darren or. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big band music, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is weird, and I've I've heard that from other people too. Like in the Gen X generation, like you know, they'll say like, you know, I feel like I'm 18, but then when I look in the mirror, I see this 50 year old guy, and it it spooks me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Am I allowed to wear skinny jeans? You know, like, <laughs> right. can I still wear Converse? Yeah, is, is that okay? I, um, several years ago, um, Red Book Magazine did uh it was like a, like how men think issue or something. And they reached out to a whole bunch of people, writers and celebrities and stuff and asked them all to write little pieces. And so they contacted me and they said, we, um, we want you to write a piece for this. Um, we want you to write a piece. Um, why are men obsessed with being cool? And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. And then they said, you have 200 words. (laughs) No, it would be easier for me to write 20,000 words. On that subject, because um, especially now, it's like, you know, like it's not out of the question for somebody in their 50s to still be hip. But if you're trying, you're failing, you know, like, so right. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different 
I don't know. It's a different kind of cult, uh, generational crisis, I think. Yeah. No, it's weird. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's, it's that acceleration of culture. Everything seems mm-hmm. super compressed. And I, I've thought about that too. Like I'm, when I'm in the car with my kids and like, they're enjoying the same music that I'm listening to, which mm-hmm. never would have happened with my parents. Right. Like my, my dad like had al- like Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass uh, albums. Like, I'm listening to him now because I inherited him. I think it's pretty cool. But you know, when you're 12, you're like, boy, that's pretty lame. But like my yeah. kids, they enjoy the same, like they enjoy the killers. They enjoy bleachers. They enjoy the same music that I like to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like I was listening to uh, the, the one of the, to Kendrick Lamar and like, they, they didn't know what to make of it. Like, you know, it was like, a, like, is this, you know, do we need to go find some other music now so that we're not listening to the same music as you? Right. No, it's like, it's interesting. I'm sure it's interesting to me for different reasons than it's interesting to you is what I said to them. And, um, you know, I, I think that helped. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That, that saved Kendrick Lamar. For right. Um, yeah. So well, we have that. Let's go back to, you know, working on this with your dad and, you know, that's a great setup for like the stereotypical, like, you know, father, son working on this project together, you know, like a river runs through it type thing where fatherly wisdom is imparted and et cetera, et cetera. Did that happen? Like when you started working on this with your dad, were you hoping that, you know, you would like gain like all the wisdom that he had while you were sanding your own coffin? Of course I was hoping that, but I knew my dad well enough to know that that's not what exactly what would happen. I mean, you know, anytime that I would try to get philosophical or feelsy about it. He would make, you know, like a, a wry joke out of everything. But I knew like my, um, you know, going back to my earliest memory, my, my favorite times with my dad were always when I was with him, either in his workshop or when he was working on a project somewhere around the house. Cause he was always doing that. He was an engineer and a, like a really inventive tinkerer and a really talented, you know, sort of woodworker and, and, you know, just good with all of the things that a household needs and all that. And I always just really lo- loved, you know, either just being around him when he was doing it or actually helping him with that. And I, and I took on a lot of that interest too. And so, you know, kind of our, you know, our best bonding moments for lack of a letter, better term have been, in, in those kinds of projects where it wasn't like we had to talk about, isn't this great that we're doing this together? You know, what, <laughs> thanks for being my dad. It was never like that. It was just like, you know, we just both enjoyed doing it together and, and we both gathered by osmosis certain things from each other. So when we, so this was, you know, pretty early on in the process, he knew that I was writing, going to be writing about this. And in fact, I actively sometimes as we were working in the, dusty workshop, I'd go over to my notebook and write something down and he'd be aware of it. You know, so sometimes he'd, I'd, you know, ask him to say something again because I wanted to make sure I wrote it down. And so he'd just kind of chuckle and he's, you know, just nod and, you know, it's basically just went along with it because he was a good sport. But, you know, did I do it specifically to get some new experience from him? Um, You know, I had some you know, again, I had some hope that there would be something special that would come from it, but really just what came from it was I created some new extra time with him 
that we got to spend together solely the two of us. And then upon his death, I immediately was so thankful for that. Cause at times I was like, I hope I'm not wasting his time or I hope he's not wishing he didn't have this, you know, cause it took, it ended up taking us four years because we kept getting busy with other things. We'd come back to it and it was taking up room in his workshop. And I'm like, am I being a burden to him? But as soon as he passed, I was like, no, I'm glad we did that. And I'm sure he was too. Yeah. I love that. How, uh, you know, you had that hope that you would get some sort of wisdom, but like, you know, you didn't, but it was still worthwhile. I feel like a lot of young people, like, I don't know, parents that are like in their thirties, forties, like they, they have a lot of high, like they put high expectations on themselves on like what it means to be a dad. And like, they should always be like imparting this, you know, important wisdom to their kids at any moment. But I remember when growing up, like my dad wasn't like that. He was he wasn't that the talkative type, right? But the best memories I had of him, you know, is when you know my dad was a game warden. And sometimes he would take me out with him patrolling, uh, for you know, checking duck hunters. And that was just awesome because I got to get up at four o'clock in the morning. We I was in a truck with him for hours and we didn't really talk. Uh and I just but it was great. I I loved it. And that's for me that was sufficient. Um and sometimes I've 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 tried to remember that with my own kids. Like I don't need to like always be lecturing them and imparting, hoping to like stuff their heads with as much knowledge and just being there is, is enough. Yeah. And you know, as my kids got older, cause I, I, I was the same way. I mean, I was definitely more emotive in the household than my dad ever was. Like I refer into the, in the book jokingly to myself as the emo mascot of the homestead. But you know, you wonder like, did I say enough or did I give them enough examples? And my kids are, you know, college age now and I see enough of how they're living their lives now to think, yeah, they were probably getting what I was hoping or some of what I was hoping they would get. But, but yeah, kind of to that, you know, sort of like that overt imparting of wisdom or, or, or bonding or whatever. There's a unexpectedly funny moment that happened that, that I write about in the book, you know, the movie boyhood, the Richard Linklater movie. Um, When that came out, I got the DVD and I was like, my dad always came over on Sunday for dinner. So I'm like, dad, why don't you come over early in the afternoon? And you and my son, Evan, who was exactly the same age as the boy in the movie. And I will watch this movie together. And so we sat down on the couch and I was all like, I'm like, this is going to be great. It's going to be three generations of men watching this movie about two generations of, of, of a father and son, you know, sort of aging in real time before us on age. It's going to be like this really meta emotional experience. And like 10 minutes into the movie, I'm sitting in the middle and they're both kind of starting to fidget. And like, and this is like a three hour movie. So it was like this long afternoon of me hoping for something meaningful to happen. And both of them kind of like, okay, is this, how's this, is this going to go over? Like in the movie, you see that the, the character, if you know the way it was filmed, it, the characters age in real time because Richard Linklater came back, you know, every year, I think, and, and filmed a new set of scenes that, so this movie, you see the characters age in real time. And I felt like we watching it were aging in real time as we were viewing the movie. So yeah, it was weird. Yeah, no, yeah. So okay, I guess the insight insight there's like don't put so much pressure on yourself. Exactly. As exactly. A dad. Yeah. Yeah. It made me think about, you know, a great example of not putting pressure and just enjoying the moment is that, you know, Field of Dreams, the end where Kevin Costner plays catch with his ghost dad. 
right? Just they're just playing catch. I'm sure right. they didn't talk at all. They just they just threw the ball. Yeah, you know, as as you might expect, when one builds his own coffin, one knows that there will be some point when he or she will have to lie down in it. I mean, you got to take it for a test drive, right? And so I was aware of that as as we were going through this that there would be some moment when that would happen. And I'm like, I need to time this right because it's going to be the most meaningful moment of this whole process. I'm going to know what it feels like to lie in my final resting place. You know, like, so all this, like, sort of like all this pressure. And when it finally happened, it's like, it really was like the, one of these, like, okay, let's get this over with moments, you know, like, and I laid down and I'm like, okay, let's feel it. And it's kind of like, you know what? Death is really not interested in me. <laughs> you know, death has bigger fish to fry. Like, um, you know, you hope for those, you hope for those like epiphanies in your life. And, and there are certain moments in your life when you expect them. And the truth is, you know, life is indifferent and, you know, and, and we are so, so small and so temporary that, you know, we're not, you know, it's, you know, we're not as big as we think we are. We're not as worthy of, of, you know, lightning bolts coming into our bedrooms and, you know, sort of revealing things. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a much more mundane thing. Right. And that's why, I mean, but what's crazy is like, you should be, that's what makes those experiences when you do have them, right. When you're not expecting like it, what's makes them all the more, I don't know, meaningful because you weren't expecting it and it yeah. sticks with you the rest of your life. Yeah. All right, so let, we've 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 been really heavy and yeah. philosophical. I mean, let, let's get to the brass tacks of building a coffin. Because reading this, I learned a lot about coffins that I didn't know about. Like, for example, there are dimensions coffins have to be in order for you to get it in the ground. And if you go too big, then like you're gonna have to spend thousands of dollars extra to accommodate that. So, like, what are the dimensions of a coffin? Was it was the coffin smaller than you thought it was? going to be um it could have been <laughs> we we kind of like it started to expand without our realization it, as as good an engineer and designer as my dad was yeah we knew the dimensions i i can't tell you offhand what they are but they're they're in the book i i consulted with a um with a funeral director as we were working on this and he told me what the standard dimensions are. And when you're talking about like a traditional burial situation, the dimensions are limited to the size of the vault that the concrete or that the, the casket has to go in. It's usually concrete or, or metal. And the reason for the vault is so there won't be a sinkhole where the grave is, you know, it'll, it'll keep it from, you know, just collapsing after the after the organic materials break down, which is what they really should do. But yeah, so if it so if it exceeds the dimensions of a standard vault, then you have to either buy a really expensive like mega vault or something, or accommodate it in some other way. And so, anyway, because we kept coming up with other ideas to expand on the the design of this thing, we somehow accidentally made it bigger than the standard vault. And I don't want to give away too much of the drama of this situation, but we had to figure out a way to deal with that situation. So yeah, there were some. Uh, Practical considerations, definitely, that that went into the design. Right. And, and yeah, coffins are expensive and they get really a lot. They yeah. can get really elaborate. Like there's like, I think there's coffins that you can buy with like, you know, your sports team emblazoned oh, yeah. on it. Yeah, that was, you know, the weirdest thing, Brett, was when I was 
like researching this and just kind of like free form, you know, just sort of um, doing some Google research early on, I was just like struck by how immediately available a casket is. Cause it's something you never think about or uh, until suddenly you have to think about it, but you can get, you know, like you can get a casket from Amazon with overnight shipping, you know, like, and, and you can buy one from overstock. You can buy them from Walmart eBay has listings, which was weird because like the eBay listings all use like sort of the standard eBay language. Right. So it's like unisex casket, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like one size and, you know, like, and, and, you know, like overnight shipping available. And, but then it would always say new and right. I'd be like new, like as opposed to used. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so that was weird. But the weirdest was, yeah, then all these novelty caskets. And I discovered there's a company that makes a base bacon casket. And it's 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 a steel casket, but it's encased in bacon. And it has these options, like you can get a bacon air freshener for the inside. And the, the ad the, the marketing copy said for when you get that buried underground, not so fresh feeling. <laughs> so yeah, some really weird yeah. ones. But you know, if you can make people laugh at your funeral, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, it's very Egyptian. When I read that, it was like that's like mm-hmm. something like an Egyptian king would do. Like I'm going to be buried with bacon yeah. so that I can yeah. eat bacon on my yeah. journey a, to a the cool Egyptian king. Right, cool, sure. a, a cool Egyptian king. Yeah. And, and there's also you can just get a cardboard box now and be right. buried in it. And I guess it's earth, you know, green or eco friendly. Yeah, I got really interested. Green burial is really, really growing. And I got really interested in that. You know, my my Sicilian Catholic wife will never probably go for that because we have to be buried in, you know, near our family members because somehow we'll be, you know, having parties there in the cemetery. But I, I, I really would, you know, love the idea of being buried in one of these organic cemeteries where you basically, I mean, the ones that I am familiar with, um, you put into the ground with the minimum of, you know, covering. You can just be wrapped in cotton. Everything has to be biodegradable. Um, you could put um, a marker there, but it can't be a polished stone. They want it to be a natural stone. And they like that because it provides habitat for like, you know, salamanders and things. And there's something about that that's that strikes me as you know the way maybe we should be doing things you know i'm catholic and and so i know what my traditions are but um even like cremation was not a catholic thing until very recently and now it's a huge growing trend and you know there's something about just practical about the organic possibilities of burial but i think also you know sort of spiritual about it like you know shouldn't I be a creating as little disruption and and damage to the environment when I'm no longer part of it and be, you know, sort of like recognizing that I'm not, you know, what's the point of preserving the box that I'm buried in with a, with a concrete vault when, you know, I'm going to be decomposed in a week. Right. Dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. Yeah. Right. Yeah, biblical there. <laughs> within a big metal box. <laughs> within a big metal box. <laughs> yeah, you kind of like what is? It? I wonder what decomposing is like. Is it is is you turn into dust, or is it sort of like you leak? Well, that's another thing people don't know about yeah. coffins. Is like you have to put in pans in the coffin because yeah. bodies leak. Uh, yeah, whenever you're buried. 
Yeah. One of the hilarious things when my dad and I were going through this, like we'd go to the, to the hardware store at the lumberyard and he'd be like, you know, we'd be picking materials and he'd be like, well, I'd really like to do like cedar or redwood because they're, they're less resistant to rot. And I'm like, dad, you know, I'm not resistant to rot. So like, what's the point? But he, you know, he's like very practical, but you know, I'd point these things out and then he'd laugh, but you know, it was, yeah. So coffins are big. Um, and so you're not dead yet. So you're not using it. So like, where, what are you doing with your, your coffin right now? Yeah. So like, I feel like I'm giving away all the spoilers. So anybody listening, you you really don't need to buy the book. Um, cause (laughs) yeah, I'm telling you all the good stuff. So, um, no, so at one point when we were when we were doing this, you know, well, first of all, like there was always this question between me and my wife, like where are we going to store this thing? And I would always just sort of bluff and say, "Oh, don't worry, I've got a plan." Which you know, most men when they say I have a plan, mean I've got no plan. So, um, but at one point we had to stand it up on end in my dad's workshop to make some room for something. And when I looked at it, I'm like, "Wow, Dad, you know what?" that would make like a really cool, nice bookcase. And so that like sort of like idea took hold. And so the, um, so I create, I, I made a set of eventually removable shelves that insert into the standing up on end rectangular, um, piece of furniture. And, um, and it's, it's sort of an elegant solution. Um, the only problem is that, um, when I started to th- figure out where in our house this thing would fit um the only place that it would work based on the way the way the house is laid out and where furniture already is and so forth is um on the second floor of our house where the bedrooms are there's a big open central hallway and so um there's a perfect spot for it in that hallway the only problem is that when my wife and I get up in the morning the first thing we see when we open our bedroom door is the casket in which it, I will be buried someday, which is, um, would seem on the surface to be kind of a, a morbid thing. But I, when I think about it, um, you know, if you wake up in the morning and the first thing you realize is that I will die someday, it sort of puts you on your game for the right. day. It's kind of like, yep, let's get coffee <laughs> and get busy. You know? So, um, yeah. So the other thing is, you know, when, when, um, when the book launch happened, it was at our, at, at the, at Akron's main library it has an auditorium and that's where the book launch event took place. And the library staff made these, they reserved the first two rows of seats for my family and some, some guests. And they made these, these cards, these laminated cards that had like my, my author headshot and it said reserved for our special guest. And my wife brought one of those home and she has attached it to the side of the coffin. So it's my picture reserved for our special guest on the side <laughs> of my, of, of my casket. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, David, this has been a good conversation. Is there anywhere people can go to learn more about your work? Yeah, I have a website. It's davidgiffles.com. Fantastic. Well, David Giffles, thanks for coming on. It's been a good conversation. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. My guest was David Giffles. He's the author of the book, Furnishing Eternity. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at davidgiffles.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash giffles, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Thank you.